This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We got a lot of stuff to do today. We'll be on, and uh, let's see. I got Newt Gingrich coming up at the half hour to talk about one thing or another. By the by, um, you can get us on the internet. You can live stream us on the internet, right? It's LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com. That's the internet one, right? LarryCudlowShow.com. I just asked the producer. He doesn't know. I just asked the senior guy. He doesn't know. So I'll just make it up. But I think that's true. It runs across the country and um, all around the world and throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. So it's terrific. LarryCudlowShow.com. Yes, go not up and down, fellas. All right, right, right. That's good. All right, we're there. Um, during the week, FBN, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And if you can't get there at four, you know, you can text message your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. Now, a bunch of things to talk about here at the opening. One of them was Biden's awful State of the Union. Terrible. Everything was wrong. Big government socialism. Spend more, tax more, regulate more, borrow more, inflate more. I mean, honestly, it was just terrible. It's like every he scratched every Democratic itch in that speech. And then he goes through this ridiculous, moronic attack on Republicans for Social Security and Medicare, which uh, Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, uh, said is off the table. In fact, um, I saw Kevin uh, Tuesday morning. That Tuesday morning, we had a brunch with a few people. It's off the table. And I know some Republican, God forbid, somebody should talk about Social Security and Medicare. I mean, that's how stupid this is. So they're, they're like trying to hang uh, Ron Johnson for something he said a while back or Rick Scott for something he said a while back or anybody who uttered those words. I mean, it's just nonsense. I mean, Biden himself, down through the years as a senator, talked about cutting Social Security and Medicare. And he also talked about sunsetting it every five years to take a look at it, which is what Rick Scott says. And, folks, let me just tell you, without getting too deep into the weeds, you've got about six, maybe six years for the Medicare fund before that thing goes bankrupt. And then you've got about 10 years for the Social Security fund. So the time to deal with those problems, I mean, I don't know how many people, 150 million people are in. I'm in Social Security. I like Social Security. I get three grand a month. 
My wife gets even more. I don't know how she figured that out, but she gets a little more. But the system's got to be bolstered. And ditto for Medicare, which could really use some reforms, some transparency, because it's all tied up, you know, with big government uh, socialism. It's, you know, one big central planning operation. Uh, I had Steve Forbes, the great, great Steve Forbes, was on our TV show yesterday, and he talked about, you know, a number of uh, reforms for Medicare, including, by the way, transparency for prices, transparency for the performance of doctors and hospitals, and stop these government controls, which make drugs scarce and the price has to go up. And by the way, the Bidens have already tinkered with the um, with the Advantage, uh, Medicare Advantage program. I mean, Biden's just, you know, this is, it's, it's like, it's like yelling, you're a communist 50 or 60 years ago. Ah, you talked about Social Security and Medicare. The reality is, I'll bet you voters and beneficiaries are a lot smarter, and they know down the road there's going to be a problem with those two entitlement funds. And they're important to American life. Don't get me wrong. We should sustain them. I worked for Ronald Reagan over 40 years ago. He appointed a commission. The commission was run by Alan Greenspan, and I I think it had co-commissioners, Democrat Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, AFL-CIO President uh, Lane Kirkland. In other words, there were Democrats and Republicans on this commission. Uh, I was one of the staff people at the time. I was the head economist and deputy director of the OMB, the Budget Bureau. And my boss, David Stockman, was heavily involved in these discussions. And you know what? They came up with a solution that lasted, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years. So you need to do that now. But, of course, Biden is just trying desperately to use this for political advantage. So all he's doing is distracting from what's right in front of him, and that is the U.S. debt ceiling, U.S. borrowing limits, will have to be raised by legislation – Sometime this spring, I don't know whether it's going to be May or June or maybe July in the summer, but it's going to happen. And it's not going to happen without spending cuts because Joe Biden managed to spend, borrow nearly $5 trillion in his first two years. That is a world global interplanetary solar system record. And by the way, if you go down the laundry list of all the crap he wants, I mean, it's really a great story here. He wants to regulate pharmaceuticals, tech companies, bank credit cards. He wants to regulate, he wants to dictate the fees, resort fees, hotel fees. He even said, well, some of this isn't even a hotel. It's like, Regulating Motel 6. Are you kidding me? He wants to regulate what tech companies charge, what drug companies charge, what bank credit cards charge. Cable, internet, cell phones, tickets to sporting events, airline baggage. And non-compete employment contracts, of course, give the teachers union a big raise. 
Restore the full child tax credit. Okay, restore the full child tax credit. Push it. He wants to push it up to thirty six hundred dollars per kid. That would cost roughly. Are you ready for this? Ten. I'm sorry. One point six trillion. Just that alone. One point six trillion dollars over ten years, and there would be no work requirement. So parents will get paid for their kids. They don't have to work. That is insanity. But again, it's, a, you know, left-wing Democrats are scratching every itch they have. Every single left-wing itch. And on top of that, he wants to jack up taxes on wealthy people, successful earners, entrepreneurs, corporations, stocks. Just awful. I mean, you know, you want to solve the budget. And, you know, for example, you you want to solve Medicare and Social Security. Part of the solution, a big part of the solution, would be to grow the economy at about 3.5% per year, which is what we did for 50 years between 1947 and 2000. I've said this before. I'll say it again. If we grow the economy at 3.5% a year, more people would work, more new businesses would be formed, more growth and prosperity would occur, revenues would come flowing in, particularly if you coupled that with work requirements. The government would be spending less, they would be getting more revenues. That would bolster Social Security and Medicare as well. Think about that. 3.5% growth. So since 2000, under Republicans and Democrats, the economy has grown at an average of a little bit more than 1.5%. Trump had it going pretty good there for about 18 months until the Federal Reserve came crashing down. Trump had it up about 4% for about a year and a half. Then the Fed started squashing that stupidly. There was no inflation. By the way, that reminds me, Biden lies all the time. He says he inherited inflation from Trump. The economy was reeling from Trump, you know. Sure it was, Joe. The inflation rate was 1.4%, and the economy in the first quarter was 6.5%. In the third quarter of 2020, as we started to come out of uh, the terrible virus, the economy grew at 35% at an annual rate. And then the next quarter was about four or five, and then the first quarter was six and a half with no inflation. Trump handed Biden a superb economy on a silver platter, and Biden completely mangled it with his high inflationary spend, tax, and regulate. Last year, 2022, right? Last year, the U.S. economy grew at a measly 1% with a 6.5% inflation rate which was, by the way, running 9 to 10% for about the first four months of the year. Is that growth, 1%? With a 6.5% inflation rate, which is three times the Federal Reserve's target, and where people, ordinary working folks, blue-collar working folks, see their wages shrinking because of inflation. And... Listen to this. The cost of living, which is the CPI, the cost of living went up 
14% in Biden's two years, first two years. That is the highest two-year increase since Jimmy Carter, okay? That's a fact. Everything I've said is facts. You disagree with me? I'm happy to do it right in WABC. I'll try to respond. These are facts. And Biden took a really healthy economy and essentially bombed it, bombed it into the ground. 1% growth, six, I think 6.3% GDP deflator. CPI, I think, for the year, year end to year round is about 6 and a half. So whose fault is that? Workers' take-home pay went down by 1.5%. They lost money. Despite a healthy labor market, inflation wiped out take-home pay. And Biden, of course, wants to spend and tax and regulate even more. He attacks big oil. Says they make too much money. And by the way, he says, okay, we'll use oil and gas for 10 more years. He basically announced the death of fossil fuels. Like, according to Biden, fossil fuels is a dead man walking. 10 more years and that's it. Well, that's just utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Fossil fuels supply of over 70% of our energy and our power, okay? Over 70. Refined petroleum products permeate the economy. A couple of hundred areas, including the clothes you wear, the glasses you wear, your doctor's stethoscope, et cetera, et cetera. So I could go on forever. And Biden thinks he's going to end that in 10 years. No, he's not. What a stupid thing to say. And by the way, the reason oil prices are high is because we stopped producing, all right? Barrels per day is still under 12 million. Trump left it slightly over 13 million pre-pandemic. A million barrels a day in a rising economy is a big shortage. That is another reason the inflation rate has gone up besides federal spending and borrowing. So sure, the oil companies have profits because prices are very high, higher than they expected. Even today, even though Biden has basically spent over uh, roughly half of our strategic petroleum reserve in order to get gasoline prices down, I mean, he's wasted a national security tool. Badly. I don't know how he's going to recover and buy that stuff back. But even with that, crude oil is roughly $80 a barrel. It should be 50 Gasoline is roughly $3.50 nationwide. It should be two and a quarter. So, yeah, the oil companies made a lot of money, more than they expected, because he wouldn't let them drill. No permits. So there's a shortage. And the economies were rising and prices went up. It was his stupid policies, radical green nonsense. And he's not letting up now. There was no mention of permitting reform. Joe Manchin, I'm sorry, you double-crossed us on the inflation reduction bill and they double-crossed you and you got nothing. 
So we're in a fix. And by the way, Americans don't like it one bit. Big majorities believe they're worse off today than they were two years ago. I'll take a quick break, talk some more about this. And I want to talk about the absolutely fabulous speech by my pal Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the new governor of Arkansas. It was a riveting speech. She stole the show from Biden. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks, and Larry Kudlow. Um, we'll talk more about the State of the Union message and how awful it was and how these politicians are trying to pull the wool over your eyes for your Medicare and Social Security. I mean, we need to preserve that stuff and strengthen it. But I want to switch uh, gears a little bit because my very dear friend, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the governor of um, Arkansas, just elected last November. She is the uh, youngest woman governor in the country. I don't know if she's the youngest governor. Sarah was the press secretary in the Trump White House when I worked there. We were dear friends. We're still dear friends. And gave a fabulous, riveting speech. Really, really good stuff. Blasting Biden's whole economic agenda, his social woke agenda, and... um, I mean, she's like, stole the show, okay? Stole the show. Sarah says, I'm for freedom. He's for government control. At 40, I'm the youngest governor in the country. At 80, he's the oldest president in American history. I'm the first woman to lead my state. He's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. I just love that. And the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire. But you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. Whether Joe Biden believes this madness or is simply too weak to resist it, his administration has been completely hijacked by the radical left. And this is it. Right here comes the key point. The dividing line in America is no longer between right and left. The choice is between normal or crazy. I mean, that is a fabulous, fabulous line. And uh, she told a riveting story about President Trump's trip, uh, secret trip to Iraq Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, to visit the troops. Sarah was on the plane. It was terrific stuff. She was a great storyteller. Uh, But she got her messages out, and she made it very clear uh, that Biden's woke socialism is the wrong way. And that some of this stuff is crazy. Some of this woke stuff is crazy. Some of this stuff about gender, race, everything's racism, and, of course, high taxes and regulations and spending. And... uh, In Arkansas, she will show you an example of free market supply-side economics. She's already put together a terrific school choice program. And uh, she's done some other things. She'll start cutting taxes as soon as she can. It was a fabulous speech, really fabulous, riveting, and hit all the important points. A complete rebuttal to Biden's speech. 
and a completely different style. The choice is between normal or crazy. I love that. Anyway, stick around. More on Sarah Huckabee, more on Joe Biden, more on the economy, more on what the Republicans' debt ceiling budget cuts will do. The great, I mean it, the great Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, will be here in just a couple minutes. Another dear friend of mine will chew on everything. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. It is with great pleasure that we welcome back former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, a great friend. He's a best-selling author. He's a Fox News contributor. He's the author of Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. His initiative is the American Majority Project. Actually, Newt, what's a, does your new book you're about to put out, does that have a title yet? Yeah, it's going to come out in June. It's called March to the Majority, and it's the story of how we spent 16 years winning a majority for the first time in, in four decades, and then what we did to um, negotiate with Clinton and get a very big series of conservative reforms enacted. So I, I think people will find it useful both as history but also as kind of a practical guide for the current Congress. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, so it can pre-order it on Amazon, stuff like that. You can pre-order that. it. It's, it's called March to the Majority. Great. I love selling books, especially your books. So, Newt, a couple things. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders stole the show Tuesday night. I mean, I that think that's a very thing. that's a very important point. <laughs> Tell yeah, us. I, I, I wrote a newsletter at Gingrich 360 entitled <laughs> A Star is Born. All right. Uh, I, I, I was sitting there sort of. Watching Biden, and I always wonder if he goes slowly out in order to push the Republicans back. But in any event, uh, I thought his speech was breathtakingly dishonest, mm. uh, which meant, of course, that the elite media loved it because they're equally dishonest. Uh, but then uh, she came on, and she she was so good. I compared it to Reagan's 1964, A Time for Choosing. I mean, she she went to basic values. Mm. She said what virtually all of us believe. And I thought it was remarkable. Normal or crazy? You can't put it any better than that. That's right. And then sadly, it's true. And no, you know, normal, like in the in your in your um, you know effort, uh, the American majority to put a coalition together. There was a time, right, in our lifetime. There was a time when the Democratic Party was far more normal and worked with Republicans in normality. I mean, you know, uh, like I, I think, I unanimous right, votes for Reagan's tax reform and defense and so forth. So now it's crazy. And I thought she nailed them on that. No, I thought she did. And, and you know, as, as recently as when we passed welfare reform, we got half the Democrats to vote with us. Mm-hmm. So so there, there was a base. I mean, I, I think of it as common sense Democrats. You may have noticed that in New Jersey, an entire township, uh, the, the, the city council and the mayor all switched to Republican last week. Uh, and just said they'd had it. And I think that that kind of thing, you know, the culture war fight in the schools, uh, the, the racism that they are they are advocating, uh, the gigantic government spending with inflation and higher taxes and bigger deficits. I think all those things are actually driving people out of the Democratic Party. And, and uh, Myra Miller, who is a partner at the Winston Group, wrote a piece the other day and pointed out that there were, I think, Six or eight million fewer identified Democrats 
in 22 than there were in, in 18. Hmm. That, the, that the effect of uh, Biden has been to shrink the Democratic Party. It's hard to believe, just on that point, Newt, the polls are so clear the Democratic Party does not want him to run again. Now, he may be politically, I don't know, his position as president, there's nobody opposing him yet. Maybe he's stronger than folks. But they don't, the rank and file don't want him. Well, it's, it's worth remembering when you spend, you know, several trillion dollars a year and you have an entire cabinet that can go out and campaign for you. Uh, Jimmy Carter beat Teddy Kennedy hmm. and Gerald Ford beat Ronald Reagan. Uh, an incumbent president said, at least in terms of the nomination, now, Ford lost the general election and Carter lost the general election. But uh, the internal power of a president is pretty amazing. Uh, although I, I did notice Mark Halpern in his uh, daily newsletter made the point the other day that when you see the numbers and, and CBS News had some just devastating numbers about not about Biden personally, but about his policies it indicated he had a baseline of about 20 to 30 percent support. Uh, when you get those kind of numbers, those first couple of primaries can be devastating. And you may remember that Lyndon Johnson, who had won a gigantic election in 64, assumed he was going to be renominated in 68 until the New Hampshire primary. Hmm. And while he won it, he won it by such a narrow margin, he promptly announced he was not going to run again. And so I think when you get to people going into a secret ballot, um, if anybody has the courage to run, and somebody will, uh, Biden is suddenly going to face a real test of people who say not him. You know, if you go through his State of the Union speech, okay, I was doing Fox uh, News duty that night, and I'm what, sitting with uh, Brett Baer and others reading the thing and then listening to him. This was, he's, he scratched every left-wing itch in the Democratic Party. And if you totaled up, took an adding machine, an old-fashioned adding machine, God knows over the next 10 years plus, you could have. He's probably going to spend another five trillion dollars. He's have cross the board tax increases on successful earners, on corporations, on oil companies. He wants to impose fees and tell you know hotels and resorts how to behave, sell companies what to charge, uh, all this stuff. It was a, you know interventionist, expensive, and anti growth. One thing after another, Newt. Well, I mean, if, if you want to know what I meant by the term big government socialism, yes. you got it in that speech. Uh, it, it is the belief that the president of the United States has the power and the wisdom to interfere in every single aspect of our lives. Uh, and, it, and also, it, it, it's, it is sort of Santa Claus, you know, on, on, on uh, steroids. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you that, I'm going to give you the next thing. And by the way, don't worry about paying for it. Well, we just lived through the experience. When you don't worry about paying for it, it comes back as inflation. And so that was the most pro-inflation, pro-debt, pro-tax increase speech mm. I think any president's ever given of the State of the Union. And he lied about inflation. He blamed Trump. Huh? Uh, look. <laughs> its inflation rate was 1.4 percent. The economy was growing at 6.5 percent in the winter of 2021. He's blaming Trump. Yeah, well, I thought Laura Ingram had a great line. I, I did her show the next night. Hmm. She had a whole opening riff about Fantasy Island. <laughs> and, and, that, and that Biden is living on Fantasy Island. And I thought it captured it perfectly. This is, and this is why the, the normal versus crazy uh, point that, that uh, mm -hmm. Sarah uh, made 
uh, that, you know, the fact is, in order to believe Biden's speech, you have to believe in an alternative universe. Uh, you, you, you know, again, he claimed the border was fine. He claimed he had really taken care of the Chinese. You know, there was a challenge and we li- and we met it. Well, that's baloney. The, the balloon went all the way across the country. And only when it left America did they shoot it down after having allowed it to spy for seven days. Um, you know, the border is clearly not controlled. And, and for Biden to be able to stand there with a straight face and say, it is, is just a lie. And, of course, he then demagogued and lied about Medicare and Social Security. I mean, the question the press should be asking Biden is, so since it is inevitably going to go bankrupt on the current trail, mm-hmm. what is your plan? Right, right. You don't. You know what? Exactly. These cheap shots distract from the real problem, which is all the official estimates is are you got five to ten years max for both right. funds. And we're going to have to do something about it. And if you don't want to do it as far as, you know, debt limit, uh, CR, whatever they're going to do, I'll talk to you about that in a little bit. Set up a Reagan-like commission. Remember? Exactly. Ray, uh, Greenspan, no, exactly. Moynihan. I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing a newsletter saying that, that those, those two topics in particular can't be handled in the current political environment. But you could do a commission now. Right. To report back in 25, and you could make it genuinely nonpartisan. Right. Because if you remember, the commission Reagan put together, I think Greenspan chaired. Yes. Uh, with And people respected it. People thought, hey, this, these are serious people doing a serious thing. With Pat Moynihan, Newt, and with Lane Kirkland of the AFL-CIO. Look, I was a deputy at OMB, and I was so I was like a staff person for that commission. And they, and they worked pretty fast. You know, they they worked. It took them about a year, as I recall. But they turned out a product, Newt, that lasted 50 years, some odd. So let's do that. So Biden, you know, these cheap shots at uh, Republicans and so forth are besides the point. The point is 150 million people will get hurt if the funds go under. Well, and I think this is an argument Republicans have to win in 24. Uh, And I was was a little surprised the other day, Mark Halperin in his column, said, you know, that because of the news media bias, there is one side demagoguing Medicare and Social Security and one side trying to solve it. The side, the, the side trying to solve it is called Republican, mm. and the side demagoguing it is called Democrat. And the news media simply won't do its job and won't tell the truth. Mm. And I think that's where we are now. But I think we have to take Biden head on on this and say, fine, what is your plan? Show us how you would save Medicare and Social Security over the next 30 or 40 years. Somebody's got to step up and say that. That's exactly right. right. I haven't seen that yet, but they need to. Instead of dodging, you know, Rick Scott said what he said. Okay, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. Um, Ron Johnson said what he said. Look, Joe Biden was for uh, sunsetting Social Security uh, when he was a senator in, I don't know, 2007. And that's not the point. The point is what you're saying Somebody's got to stand up and say, we have a big problem coming down the road. OK, and yeah, if we if we if we keep growing, the, you know, if the economy keeps slumping, Newt, for another five years, that problem's going to come even faster. Cause right. you, you need three and a half percent growth. You see what I'm saying? Somebody's got to stand up and say that. Well, and, and frankly, both Scott and, and Johnson, I'll just say flatly, I'm, I'm in favor of saving the two the systems. Mm. I offered an idea to save them. Uh, a veto pen doesn't save them. Mm-hmm. So this, this, all this, all this, you know, dancing around the stage with a veto pen, you're not fixing anything. You're, you're just demagoguing. 
I, I think we have to win. We have to win that argument. Oh, I think you're right. I, Biden is just so profoundly dishonest. You used that word before. I think you're. He's just. It's like in his genes. Look, if you if you elect the Sopranos, <laughs> you should not expect you should not expect honesty. <laughs> yes. I mean, if I, I think the family's corrupt. Period. Yeah. yeah. I think I think that, that there is zero explanation for Hunter Biden's money from China, Russia, Ukraine, etc., other than that he was influence peddling and his father knew it. Hmm. Hmm. So that's you know that, that's just straight out corruption. Why do you think you know, this is off subject, but nothing's off subject with you? Why do you think last weekend Biden's? I mean, come on. The Defense Department works for Biden, for Christ's sakes. Uh, right. Why did they wait and let this balloon, first of all, hover in Montana where there are no people? My wife is from Montana. We were married. There, there are no people in Montana. Hovered over Montana for several days where all the Minutemen, you know, anti-ballistic missiles, the nuclear ballistic missiles are, and then float through the other bases through the heart of the country. Uh, why did they wait? the most embarrassing well, thing I've ever seen. And everybody knew as soon as it was discovered that it was China. Well, I mean, I mean first of all, uh, it became clear if the White House story is true, that they didn't tell him until Wednesday. And on Wednesday, he ordered them to shoot it down and they refused to do it. It suggests that rather than being the commander in chief, he's the suggester in chief. Oh. Mm. Uh, so so start there. Uh, and and frankly, it, it's it's not unusual to have the Defense Department undermine the president. Uh, one of the things Harry Truman said when Eisenhower got elected president is that Ike was going to face a real shock because you'd issue an order in the Oval Office and some bureaucrat would make sure it didn't happen. Um, and I think that's part of it. But we're now learning, if, if I understand this, and I'm not sure I do, uh, we apparently are now learning that there have been lots of Chinese balloons. Mm-hmm. That is, in fact, a technology the Chinese have been developing both for carrying weapons and for carrying intelligence gathering, uh, that they apparently there may have been a series of them crossing the U.S. and now and now again apparently and I say apparently because I don't I don't trust anybody right now. Mm. But apparently we shot one down off of Alaska uh, yesterday, mm. and, I, and I have to tell you, I, as somebody who used to be in the Gang of Eight and who spent his entire career looking at military affairs, uh, I don't understand. I mean. I think you have a Pentagon which, between bureaucracy and wokeism, mm. may be the least competent defense department uh, since the Spanish-American War. <laughs> I mean, this is just, <laughs> you know, they, they were incompetent in Afghanistan. They've been incompetent at getting weapons to the Ukrainians. Uh, they're incompetent at dealing with Chinese balloons. Uh, and I think this is a national scandal and that, that uh, mm. overhauling and reforming the Pentagon ought to be a major component of where we go. Did you see the piece in the paper today somewhere? Uh, Trump's last defense secretary, acting defense secretary, what's his name? Chris Miller? Was that his name? No, no. Was it Esper? No, it was oh, after no, okay. Esper. Then, then, well, yeah, the, one, the one after Esper would be Miller. I think it was Miller. Anyway, Miller said yeah. you could cut half the budget in the Pentagon and still be okay. That's how bad it is over there. Well, well I, I tell people. Uh, the Pentagon was built in 1943, um, so it's basically 80 years old. Hmm. It was designed for 26,000 people 
using carbon paper, manual typewriters, and filing cabinets right. to manage a global war. Right. Now, tell, tell me the information exchange rate between smartphones, iPads, and laptops versus carbon paper, manual typewriters, and uh, filing cabinets. And then explain to me why we still have 26,000 people sitting in the Pentagon. Mm. I, 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 I've said for two years. We could cut the Pentagon to a to to a triangle, turn the other two thirds of it into a national security museum, and you would get a you would literally get a better, more agile defense system. I love that, but it just shows you, you know, there is room to cut for heaven's sakes, and you're not going to sacrifice well, national security. Newt, no. stay with me. Keep, have right. more of your coffee. I'm going to come back, take a quick break. You and I'll talk some more. All right. Why did you say turn the Pentagon into a triangle? Right. <laughs> Folks, we're talking to the great Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House. Uh, his book is called his next book, March to Majority. You can pre-order on Amazon. It's going to be a fabulous book. I'm Kudlow, a little measly Kudlow. We'll be right back in a moment. Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, best-selling author, Fox News contributor. Uh, his most recent published book is called Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. He's got a brand-new book out. You can order it on Amazon and wherever else you want to. It's called March to Majority. It's going to be a super uh, book. Uh, Newt, you know, these um, areas, these antiques, Social Security, Medicare, you're talking about the Pentagon, a lot of these agencies, I mean, you can go through transportation. I mean, you know them well. I know them well from my government terms. Um, You're talking about modernization to bring them into the the 21st century. Uh, It doesn't, I mean, yes, Spending will probably wind up being cut over time, but the purpose is modernization to make it more efficient and actually serve the taxpayers and the missions of the U.S. government. That's that's what has to be communicated, doesn't it? Oh, did we lose him? We lose him. Maybe something went down. Some, but I think you know uh, we'll get him a second. He's got a good point. I mean this. The Pentagon is a perfect example, and I and I speak as a hawk, okay? I started my career in the federal government under Ronald Reagan. I am a hawk. Um, but the Pentagon has – all right, Newt's back. Newt. Um, yeah. Did you, I don't know if you heard the, my, my modernization toss. Yeah. Okay. yeah no, I did. And, and here, here's the point, because I think we need to use some new language. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not – it's not about cut. It's about savings. You know, when when Calista goes online, she did the other day, to buy something, and she found it from one place for like $46 and looked around and found it from another place for $12, we didn't talk about that as cutting $34. Mm. We talked about it as saving $34, and we thought it was actually a smart thing to do. So if I can take whatever the workload is of the Pentagon itself, just just that one 26,000-person building, and I can modernize it, and recognize that between computers and iPads and smartphones, that you don't need 26,000 people pretending they're working on manual typewriters. And, mm-hmm. of course, what's happened is you have so many people who are redundant 
that they have to write letters to other people to prove that their job is worthwhile. So the other person then has to answer their letter. Mm-hmm. So you have a Pentagon that is drowning in bureaucracy. But but let me go to a totally different example. They just reported, I think it was on Fox and Friends two days ago, they have 23 schools in Baltimore in which not a single student, not one, could in fact uh, be proficient in mathematics. Mm-hmm. 23 schools. Now you have to, and this is the most expensive school system in Maryland. Mm. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, what is it we're paying for? I mean, is this just a gigantic, expensive uh, nurseries program in which we we babysit? But by the way, we then cheat every single child because they can't get a job, they can't get ahead, they can't rise. Uh, and I think th- these are the kind of conversations we have to. In New York City, there are an estimated 40% of the students who don't show up. But of course, the, but the school collects the daily amount of money as though they were there, and gets and gets uh, increases every year. Right, right. So my point is, if you modernize the federal government, and you go through and you think through these programs, uh, and Philip Howard has a new book coming out, which is amazing on the whole notion, and he starts with the premise that the public employee unions are by definition unconstitutional mm-hmm. because they block government of the people, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think that. This is going to be a huge fight, and the job—the job of, I think, conservatism and Republicans—is is to make two cases. One is to return to government of the people, by the people, and for the people, which means dramatically restructuring away from the bureaucracies. Mm. And the other is to make the case that whether it's through corruption, incompetence, waste, or bureaucratism, you know, using your money in a bad way so it doesn't produce a good result is, in fact, something we should stop. Yep. and you know, it's, We should be able to win those two arguments. It's true for all these big uh, departments, too, you know, education, transportation. Anyway, Newt Gingrich, thank you, sir. Terrific stuff. Right. We all thank enjoyed you. it. We all benefit from it. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to have a look at the economy after this. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we're going to do some economic work. Economy, front page, recession or not, hard landing, soft landing, inflation or not, the stock market or not. Anyway, we've got two stars, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor for Economics and Finance, and he's the co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is a must-read. And Joe Lavornia, who was a former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council, presently chief economist at SMBC Nico Securities. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for doing this. As always, we appreciate it. Uh, Joe Lavornia, I want to begin with you because uh, I did a – I did an opening riff on the TV show, and I wrote it up and give you uh, credit, big hat tip. But this is uh, nonsense surrounding the Fed, and a lot of people have fallen into this. The idea is financial conditions are easing, and therefore the Fed is going to have to be much, much tighter in order to bring the inflation rate down to their 2% target. But they're looking at the wrong stuff. I mean, they don't look it, uh, ironically, uh, the 10-year bond, which is uh, uh, it's about 360 now, 365. I think the high was about four and a quarter. Tell me if I'm wrong. But the point is, that's come down 
because the Fed is to some extent succeeding in reducing inflationary expectations and inflation fears, and the actual inflation rate has come down. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. But what they should be looking at is uh, financial conditions and risk conditions for consumers and actually businesses as well. Uh, And you cite the Fed survey of loan officers, which has tightened up their commercial and industrial business loans. And you also cite consumer lending rates have gone way up, credit cards and mortgages may have come off the high, but they're still a lot higher than they were a year or two ago. So talk about that. I mean, I don't understand this. You've got an inverted yield curve. The money supply is crashing. The leading indicators are crashing. And they're worried that conditions are easy? Really? Larry, you just summed everything up perfectly for me. <laughs> the, uh, the Fed is – but look, the Fed has always – had made mistakes in what they followed. I mean, they for decades they didn't follow money, uh, as Milton Friedman uh, accurately critiqued. And they look at output gaps and unemployment rates, and they with full unemployment, and and now they look at equilibrium real interest rates. And that's one of the things that sort of conditions their the financial condition side of things. But you're correct. The yield curve is massively inverted. That's a leading indicator of the economy. It's one of the key components of the index of leading indicators, which is down 6% annualized. We've always had recessions when that's happened. When you get the inverted yield curve, you get less lending. We're seeing that in bank lending surveys. You mentioned C&I loans, consumer loans, commercial and industrial loans. That inversion or that persistence of tightness will continue until the curve uninverts. Uh, you didn't mention commodity prices, although we talked about it the other day. Commodity prices aren't going up anymore. The dollar's not falling anymore. Long rates have come down. The Fed is massively too tight, Larry. They made they traded one mistake for another. They were way too easy in 21 and in 22, early 22, and now they've gone massively tight the other way, and we're going to have a recession because of Fed policy. You know, uh, the chart we used on the TV show, Joe, was your chart about consumer lending rates. I guess it's some kind of composite, but it's gone up. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's up to nearly eight percent. It was down around one or two percent uh, a year ago. I mean, th- that's called tight. I mean, ordinary yeah, credit card credit card debt. That interest rate has never been higher. Personal hmm. loan rates have surged. Mortgage rates, as you said, come down, but they're still double where they were a year ago. Auto financing rates to, mm-hmm. to buy or lease an auto, those have exploded to the upside. Those are rates that real people, consumers, need at 70% of the economy. So, uh, John Carney, I mean, I think this is important stuff. And I think this argument about financial conditions, which is sweeping the Fed, I hear it from Jay Powell, I hear it from John Williams, the president of the New York Fed. Uh, I hear it. I'm not going to name names, but some very distinguished conservative economists, at least one, is writing about it. Um, and let me go to it. Just what Joe mentioned. Um, if you look at the CRB Commodity Index, which covers pretty much everything, right? it's got oil, um, it's got uh, natural gas, it's got silver and gold, it's got wheat and farm stuff, it's got copper, blah, blah, blah. So that thing, which exploded in the second half of 2020 and all most of 21 it peaked last spring fell enormously 
And if you look at it on the chart, you can go to CRB Futures or whatever it is on online. It's been flat. Commodity prices have been flat for six months, seven months. Now, I would argue not only is that a leading indicator of falling inflation, but it also shows the fundamental value of the dollar, what used to be called the commodity value of the dollar. That was a academic discipline used years ago by Wayne Angel and uh, Manley Johnson and Robert Heller, who's still around, to be on our show next week, um, you know, as an indicator of inflation and, and, the, and the true value of the dollar. So I don't see this, you know, easy financial conditions, John Carney. Maybe you disagree. I don't disagree. I, in fact, I, I quoted Joe uh, in last night's Breitbart Business Digest yes. extensively on this. And uh, so I'm glad to get to be on the show today with him. Um, one thing, I, I do think that we have had a lot of tightening. The problem I have, though, with the thesis that it's too much is that I think we're still seeing a lot of inflation. Mm. Last month, we we had the, you know, we just had the Mannheim wholesale car index tick up a lot. Um, we're, we're seeing, we're, I think, I don't believe that we're going to continue to see soft wage numbers. I think those are going to go up. So I think what we've seen is inflation come out of the goods sector of the economy. Uh, and we're, in fact, probably going to get disinflation there, maybe some deflation in some categories. Housing prices are not are going to go down or pretty soon going to be in a year-over-year -year, uh, housing price decline. So I, I, I do think that we're losing it there, but I think we're going to see it in the services sector. And I think this is what Jay Powell's worried about, is that the services sector inflation is going to continue to push this along. We, you, we solved a lot of the supply chain problems. Uh, there may be some pressure as China comes back online for some commodities, but I, I think we're going to still be facing inflation uh, at least through the first half of this year. I don't think we're, we're on the verge anymore. And this is a change for me. I thought we were going to have a recession first half of this year. Mm. I don't think that's happening anymore. I don't think a recession is escapable, but I think we're, it's now pushed off to second half. You know, it is true. I mean, I'm looking at the Cleveland Fed. It's your favorite indicator, John Carney. <laughs> Median CPI uh, through December 2022, last December for the 12 months, is seven. Uh, the actual CPI, six and a half. And then the CPI, uh, less food and energy, 5.7. So they're still pretty big numbers. Um, they're not nine, but they're still high. The Fed wants two. But I guess the question is, and uh, Joe mentioned Milton Friedman. I loved Milton. He was wonderful to me. He taught me a lot. I knew him quite well. Uh, monetary uh, lags are long and variable. That's always the issue here, isn't it? You know, these other indicators we've been discussing, money, inverted yield curve, uh, leading indicators, and so forth, and I will use the commodity markets, you know, they're maybe telling you the inflation. I don't know how low it's going to go, but it's going to drop a couple more, three more points, something like that. And they got to be very careful here. It's it's just that, look, if you look at the wrong stuff, you're going to make the wrong policy decisions. And this financial conditions thing is baloney. 
I mean, you can't look at the st- the stock market is rallying. I had Ed Yardeni on the show. It's been rallying modestly since last October. Uh, but that doesn't mean the Fed is failing. That I think that rally is because the Fed's succeeding in bringing inflation down. Um, That's right. I, I think that that we that a huge part of the rally has been people being convinced that inflation that we are we've sort of broken the back of inflation. We saw you know very mild numbers in November and December. So they so people think okay, inflation won't be that bad, which means the Fed can pause. Which means stocks can go up. I, I I think that's right. I think that we're having a it worked. The Fed won rally is the way I put it. Not mm-hmm. a market fighting the Fed necessarily, but a you know a celebration that we had very good inflation numbers in November and December. My worry is what happens next week if we get a much hotter number. And if you look at my other favorite indicator, the Cleveland Fed. It's all out of Cleveland. Uh, the Cleveland Fed now cast yes. of CPI. Yes. yes, that's a big uptick from what you know. We saw a negative number month to month in December. It's you know it's up at I think point four uh, for January. If we see a number that comes in even higher than that, point five, point six, I think that the market then you may get a little bit of a panic as people say, okay, the Fed actually hasn't won yet. I mean, Joe. So I so much of this is gut reaction, but um, you know, let them go to five percent or five and a quarter, and just leave it there. They don't have to keep rate. I mean, just just leave it there. Yeah, the one they, thing I'm, that the market I think is completely wrong, and I don't know if it's the market, but I think it's these Wall Street gurus, yourself excluded. Um, just leave it there. You don't have to cut the rates. You should, in other words, don't go stop and go or go and stop. Be steady. Uh, yeah. and, the, the thing, Larry, is, but, you know, that's what they're, they're going to try to do. But here's the problem. The yield curve is inverted. Mm-hmm. The two-year to 10-year spread got to almost 85, minus 85 basis points this week. And that's with the funds rate only at four and a half. If you go back to when it was uh, more inverted in the early 80s, the, the Fed funds rate was around 16%. So today's inversion is historic when normalized for rates. The problem, I would say, pushing back against the narrative to keep rates on hold longer, is that that inverted curve is causing financial disintermediation, which is why that senior loan officer survey is so important, because the longer that curve stays inverted, the less credit will flow to the economy. And when the Fed realizes that, It'll be too late, so you'll go from the boom to the bus, and it happens very quickly. So let the look. The ten-year, I think, should be up around four and a half percent. That's what I would say. Leave it, leave it up there. I think it got a little bit irrationally exuberant. Uh, It's starting to edge back up anyway. Got to what three thirty-five or something. Now it's three sixty-five or something. So let it go. Let it go to four and a half percent. By the way, historically, that's a nice rate. That's a nice rate. The thing, but the thing is, the market is saying the Fed funds rate is going to go to five and a quarter, and the break-even rate is low. So for the ten-year note to get up to four and change, one of two things has to happen: either the funds rate has to go up higher to six or above, pulling the ten-year note with it, and or the break-even rate. Has to go higher, but what's the break-even break rate? rate? You mean the, the uh, break-even rate of inflation? The CPI break-even. Uh, break yeah, exactly. So, That's only about 
two and a quarter. So, but that won't happen with the curve inverted and with the market saying the Fed's already tight. But if you look at uh, John Carney, if you take uh, the break evens are very interesting. So let's say they're two and a quarter, two thirty five, and you got a funds rate at uh, four and three quarters. What does that mean? That's uh, that means the real Fed funds rate has really gone up a lot. And that is tight, not loose. That's it does a- mean that, but I think you're right, Larry, that they, what they need to do is go up and stay there because I, I, I do fear that we will have this thing where they go up sometime in November or December. They're like, they think they've broken the back of inflation. Um, and they don't, and, and a lot of people don't see that there's a lot of underlying inflationary things going on in the world economy right now. You have deglobalization, you have this push for, you know, green, clean energy. These, these are inflationary pressures in the economy. You have very, you, you have people not reentering the workforce, so you have low wor- workforce participation, inflationary. So the Fed might think, okay, that's it. Look, we beat it. We can start to cut again in November. And then you get another inflationary spike. That's what that's what Jerome Powell's afraid of. I'm worried about that. Uh, so I think it's unhelpful for people to expect the cut. I think they're going to have to stay at five and a quarter through most of next year. Well, not I, cut this I, year. I, I, I don't really disagree with that. I'm just saying what what they need. The stuff you were describing. You know, you need a good fiscal policy, not all this garbage that Biden announced. You know. $5 trillion more in spending, higher taxes. He wants to regulate everything that moves. He wants to regulate hotels and the fees they charge for, for for your telephone or your movies. I mean, it's crazy what they're doing. And if the Russians take 500,000 uh, gallons of oil off the market, I don't know what that's going to do. Oil may go back up a bit. But I'm just looking. i got to take a break, fellas. But here's what I'm looking at from my sheets. The 10-year closed at 373, okay, and the break-evens closed 234, okay? So that's inflation expected inflation. So that is uh, a very positive, even out 10 years for the first time in a while, it's a positive real rate. It's 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 only 36 basis points. I have that right. No, it's actually 1.39% positive real rate. Now, the real rate could go to 2 or 3. I get that. But, you know, that's a big change, Joe Lavornia. Those real rates were deeply negative for quite some time, indicating loose money. Now the real rates are going up. The short end of the curve, if I take the two-year break-evens, is 274 and I go up against a two-year notice, 450, that's a high real rate. So in other words, I'm just still arguing financial conditions are not loose. They're actually rather tight. That's all I'm saying. And uh, geniuses who are saying that, you know, just because the bond has rallied a little bit, they're wrong. It's a misread. It's a total misread. Anyway, let's take a break. How about that? We'll calm down this whole thing. We got Joe Lavornia and we got uh, John Carney, and I'm Cudlow. We're trying to figure this whole bloody thing out. Here's what I know. Everything Joe Biden said Tuesday night, the State of the Union, was inflationary, and it was recessionary. Everything he said.
every sentence, every comma, every semicolon, which he probably couldn't read, every dotted I and cross T, the whole thing was inflationary and recessionary. There wasn't a single element of growth in that entire 70-minute garbage, dishonest speech that he made. The good news is the markets didn't react to it because they know the Republicans will kill the bad stuff. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We went long, so this will be short, but we got John Carney at Breitbart, and we got Joe Livornia, now SNBC, Nico Securities, formerly White House. Um, so let's just think about this for a minute. Uh, John Carney, recession or not? What do you think? I do think recession, definitely. It just depends on timing. Uh, we're not going to get a recession very soon. A big question is, what happens after this next hike? Mm. So if the Fed goes, so and when the last hike is. So if they just go to 5%, um, I don't think we get a recession very, you know, this year. If they go to five and a quarter, five, if they go even further than that, probably this year, but not till the second half. Yeah, I was reading your piece, The Rise of the No Landing Scenario. <laughs> you know who uses that? Ed Denny he calls it No Landing. Uh, Joe Livornia, recession or not? Recession, Larry. The yield curve in its 80-year history has never normalized yep. with the 10-year note selling off. It's always been because the Fed realizes it's too tight, then it's too late, and they have to cut a lot, and the cycle starts anew. You know, that by itself, and the Fed model, the New York Fed model was the three-month T-bill in the 10-year, right? And that model has a really good record. Inversion shows tight financial conditions. So I don't know what these people are talking about. Gentlemen, you're terrific to help out on a Saturday. John Carney of Breitbart and Joe Lavagna now at SNBC Nico Securities. I'm Cudlow. Other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about China. China, our mortal enemy. Make no mistake about that. Shoot down their balloons and whatever. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Let's talk a little bit about China. Shooting down balloons or UFOs or whatever. Nobody really knows what's going on with this. They let the balloon go on for a week, and then they shot down this little aerial thing. I don't know what the hell it is. They did that the first day, so I guess they're... acknowledging they were wrong on the balloon. Anyway, my great pal, Cleet Willems, who's former deputy director of the National Economic Council, a former White House trade negotiator, presently with a uh, partner with Aiken Gump. So, Cleet, um, just give me a minute on this balloon. And I don't know what this thing is, this aerial thing. It's like a, a, a UFO. I mean, do we know it was Chinese, by the way? or What the hell was it? 
I know, Larry. I feel like we're in the middle of an, an episode of Star Trek or something with, <laughs> with UFOs. Um, <laughs> but you know, look, you're you're <laughs> you hit the nail on the head, <laughs> which was there's this inconsistency here. Yeah. You know, we've been told, oh, we couldn't shoot down the Chinese balloon when it was over Alaska. We had to let it uh, go across the United States first, and then now yesterday, you know, they shot the thing down first chance they had. Yeah. So I, you know, I think they have a lot to answer for here. And and Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary of State, has been briefing folks, briefing countries around the world, and saying that that Chinese balloon actually was collecting some meaningful intelligence. So I think yeah, it's well, a no, step. I'm gonna, I'll call it no shoot. I mean, <laughs> really, this is not, you know, but the Defense Department really is just to some extent very much to blame. I mean, Biden should, if you're going to order them, shoot. So he said, take him down. And the Defense Department tilly tallies away. Cleet, there's nobody in Montana, okay? <laughs> there's nobody in Montana. My wife's in Montana. We were married in Montana. Particularly the central part, you know, where the military bases. I mean, there's a, whatever, there's a couple hundred nuclear Minutemen there. And that balloon was hovering above it. And and we didn't do anything, really. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Anyway, you don't know what this uh, UFO aerial thing is, do you? No, I mean, I don't uh, think anybody there hasn't been any public information yeah. yet, and I obviously don't have the same yeah. intel I used to. I know. All right. Uh, so let me ask you this: this is interesting. Couple things here. I, I did what you asked. I read the first page of your testimony, <laughs> so I got up to speed. And this is good vintage uh, Cleet Wilms. I get it. So. Let me just go back. A uh, story in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was yesterday or the day before, Cleet, how total trade with China, despite various hostilities, including tariffs, total trade, exports plus imports, is very strong. Uh, record total trade. And unfortunately, the deficit is also uh, very strong. And so that leads me to ask you, because China, you know, Trump rang the bell and events since then prove, I mean, Hong Kong, the threat to Taiwan, the ongoing story, human rights story with the Uyghurs and so forth. Uh, they're helping Russia with Ukraine. You know all this better than I do. Uh, these are not our friends. They are our enemies. We can politely call them adversaries, but they are our enemies. So, Cleet Williams, what should we do about that? Well, I think when you look at, at the trade numbers – it does point to some failings by the Biden administration. And, Larry, I'm going to start with something that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is our domestic policy, our tax code, and our regulations. Mm -hmm. The best thing you can do to produce more stuff in the United States and less stuff in China is is create an incentive for companies right. to relocate here. And that's an area where this administration has done little to none and, in fact, has probably made it worse. So, I mean, I think we talk a lot about tariffs and other things, but at the end of the day, if you want to make more stuff in America, let's have competitive tax code, let's have a competitive regulatory system, and we don't have that under President Biden. You know, the, the second thing here, the second failing that I would point to is a failure of enforcement and a failure for fighting for U.S. interests abroad. And, and I think your characterization of China makes some sense. Um, they, they are a, a strategic competitor or an adversary, but that doesn't mean we don't want to be selling soybeans to their people. It doesn't mean we don't want to be selling beef over there. And this administration has done nothing to enforce the phase one deal that we've negotiated. And so I'd like to see them hold China to account to buy more of our stuff. Wait, hang on right there. That's such yeah. a key point. 
Do you know, Cleet? Yeah, I've asked this of Lighthizer, and he's never quite sure. I don't think anybody's quite sure. How how are those commodity sales actually going, and are they conforming to the guidelines that were in that phase one deal? So we've seen, a, I mean, from the public information, we've seen a slight uptick in sales, but nothing near what we expected to get. And this is an area where a lot of us on the outside, I mean, we don't have privy, we don't have access to all the same information the U.S. government does. And there's been a lot of frustration that they haven't been transparent and they haven't told us how China's doing and they haven't done anything to, to, to enforce it. And so that's one of the things I actually talked about in my testimony this week is Congress needs to hold the Biden administration to account to enforce that deal. Uh, but maybe the third point I, d- I do want to make on this uh, on these trade numbers does come back to the tariffs, and I know that that not everyone agrees with me when I say this, but I but I think what this points to is the fact that we need to reexamine whether the current structure makes sense. And I am in no way saying let's do China favors, let's let them off the hook, but I think we need to figure out are the tariffs that we have in place are they actually effectively preventing China. Um, and when it comes to strategic goods, from selling more to us, from having an advantage on that, um, or or is China able to game the system? Are they able to work around our tariffs? Um, and at the same time, are some of these tariffs actually harmful to our economy? And I, and I wish the Biden administration had the political courage to take a look at this and say, you know what? Some of these tariffs we need to increase to achieve our goals, and some of these tariffs we should probably eliminate because they actually are, are counterproductive. And so I know that's a controversial point, but I think that this data once again highlights that we need to be willing to take those kinds of actions if we really want to move these numbers. You know, Cleet, I think um, I think you're right. But as I mentioned, uh, I think we talked about I, I don't think this is the right time. I mean, it's like I don't want to do anything to help them right now. I, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> look, if you had a tougher president to provide the leadership. As you say, the the Bidens don't have the courage to do any of this stuff. And, you know, they got all these lefties in there. God knows what they do. I'm just saying, you're right. Uh, Look, we we had these across-the-board tariffs. You and I were very involved in this. Um, And probably uh, in some areas we shouldn't have, in other areas we should have. So you need to look at that. I get, I agree, but I just don't think the time is now. Yeah. Well, there, there, here's what I would say me, to that. I mean, let I, me I ask think, you. Oh, hang sure. on one second. Yeah. I just want to ask you about in terms of. Let me go back to the phase one trade deal because God knows I spent a lot of time on that <laughs> energy and that mental anguish. But, um, Cleet, how? What is your assessment of the intellectual property theft? safeguard reforms in China and the, you know, forced technology transfer issue, because those are the two, you know, really, I mean, I, I don't mind. We sell them all the commodities we want and help the farmers. Yeah. But yeah. In, in terms of the world competition, right, it's all about technology. So how do you, what do you think about those two areas? How are we doing? 
I don't think we're doing enough. I don't think we're doing well enough. And, mm-hmm. and some of that is still happening. And, you know, my view of this is, is you really need to bifurcate the U.S.-China relationship. I, I don't want a full decoupling from China. I think right. there's value for us to right. have their people buying our stuff that subsidizes our innovation. But there's areas where we clearly need to crack down, where we clearly um, need to be doing more than we are uh, than we are today. And and not to take you totally off track, but I'll just throw in there that one thing I know that's near and dear to your heart has been working on the financial flows mm-hmm. and making sure we're not financing their military. Mm-hmm. And and that's an area where I also think there's more work to be done, uh, where we can we can be more robust in making sure the capital flows aren't going to China's military. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not selling them the same technology that helps develop their military. But at the same time, then you distinguish that from some of the stuff, which, you know, should be OK. You know, Brian and I worked on that. We had a start. Uh, but I think they have to do much, much more on the financial flows. And also bring in, um, Cleet, uh, the work of CFIUS. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, commi- what is it, Committee on Foreign Investment, something or other? In the U.S. You, almost, the US. you were right there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Um, you know, because... I think export controls with respect to technology is very important. I think that's a key part of our story. I don't want to give them anything, honestly. Right. And right. if I had my way, uh, I would throw TikTok out. Look, we basically threw Huawei out. There's hardly anything left of Huawei. Did our economy suffer? No. Did our telecom sector suffer? No. You know, we did all this research at the NEC and stuff and, um, it's fine. I mean, I want to, in some ways I do, I want to punish them. They do bad things. Yeah. They constantly do bad things, Cleet. So like, uh, I agree with you. We could, we, we should probably have another look at the tariffs and the winners and losers in the U S I get that. I think you're right, but I would just say not now. Yeah. I mean, this general says the other day they're going to invade Taiwan in a couple of years. You know, I mean, I just don't want to. It's almost like signaling. It's not economics. It's signaling. I don't want to signal to them any let up in the pressure. And I think Biden's they give him the wrong signals. Cleet. You're articulating perfectly why we need a Republican president. Yes. No, no, that's right. We need a strong, tough guy in the White House. Right. Someone who we can trust to redo, redo these tariffs in a way that's going to maximize leverage, going to maximize pressure, um, but isn't going to let them off the hook. Right. I mean, that's, that's what I'd love to see. Right. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting here, uh, Huawei, the untold story on Huawei is how well we did on coordinating with U.S. allies and mm. getting a lot of them yes. to do this stuff. Yes. Yes. You know, President Trump and our administration doesn't get much credit for that. And this administration, on the other hand, they talk a great game, but they actually don't don't follow through. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to everything we've talked about, I'd like to see them with a more effective strategy of working with our partners and allies, both to take tough action together, whether it's export controls or, or uh, investment restrictions, but then also some trade deals so we can give our companies uh, positive incentives to, to move out of China, to move either to the actually, United States or to our allies. I got to run, but I, All right, Larry. <laughs> I'd like to see them take a vacation. A permanent vacation. Anyway, Cleet Willems, uh, great stuff. Former deputy director of the National Economic Council who's practicing law with uh, Aiken Gov. Now, thank you, Cleet. Talk soon. Appreciate it. Let's take a quick break. Can we take a quick break? Yeah. Then we got Joe Concha on the other side. 
uh, fabulous commentator. I'm Kudlow, folks. Stick around. Lots more to do. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to turn to my pal, Joe Concha. We're going to actually continue conversation from last night. Joe Concha's media and politics columnist for The Hill. He's a Fox News contributor. He has a very good book out. Come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency. and How to return America to greatness. So, Joe, we ran out of time last night. Uh, I wanted to ask you. You know, Sarah had the Sarah Huckabee uh, Sanders terrific speech. Stole the show, if you ask me. Stole the show, and um, that's not an easy thing to do. But uh, she had this line in there, and I wanted to explore this: how we need a new generation of Republican leaders. And Joe, let me just uh, back up contextually. She, the rest of that speech cited Donald Trump's successes, including the part where they had the surprise uh, airplane trip, you know, Christmas 2018 to the uh, troops in Iraq. But she also went through taxes and spending and stuff like that. But she had that one line. So I want to know, was that one line? Does that one line mean, yeah, good policies, but we need someone else other than my former boss? Was that what she was saying or what was she saying? Let's invent a word here to answer your question, Larry. Absolutely. Uh, because. <laughs> yeah. It, it's very, she's not talking. I mean, you could say, no, she was talking about Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader. No. Oh, she was talking about Biden. Yeah, maybe. Uh, she was talking about other people that are in Congress that when we like we talked about on your show yesterday, you watched that State of the Union. And the first thought you had is, boy, a lot of these folks look really old. Right. Uh, but I think he was she was talking about her former boss, who she was extremely loyal to, did an mm. excellent job for. But in the end, and, and like we talked about yesterday, but it bears repeating for your radio audience, when I go to conferences, when I go to places where I'm just talking to regular folks and I say, OK, who do you support, Republicans or Democrats? And let's say they say Republicans. I say, OK, I give you a choice between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Who do you choose? Mm-hmm. And a solid majority, say DeSantis. Mm-hmm. And the ones that do, they look over their shoulders, right? As if like, I, I hope nobody is you know, overhearing this conversation, <laughs> but they'll say, the reason why is, look, I always loved Donald Trump as a president. I think he did an excellent job, particularly on immigration, particularly on the border, particularly on the economy, particularly mm-hmm. on taking on crime and, and, and the like, and particularly the media, right? And the, the bottom line is that they would also say, but... And the but always comes. And the but is, I don't think he can win. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he can bring in suburban women like a Glenn Youngkin did. I don't think he could bring Democrats in like Ron DeSantis did in Miami-Dade and in Palm Beach counties. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, you just go through the list, and they just say, in the end, I'm a bit fatigued as well. And the way he's going after DeSantis these days by 
I mean, what did he say this week? He implied that Ron DeSantis was a groomer of teenage girls. Mm. This is the type of stuff that maybe in 2016, you know, Little Hands Marco and Lion Ted Cruz and Low Energy Jeb, like those things may have worked them because it was so novel to hear a so-called politician talk like this. Mm. But now I think people are worn out by it, and they're particularly insulted when it comes to DeSantis because they look at Florida and they say, I want the country to look a hell of a lot more like Florida than, say, California under Gavin Newsom. Or New York. I did this whole thing at the top of the show yesterday from the Wall Street Journal editorial, uh, New York versus Florida by the numbers. I mean, it's like Florida has more people, like they've got 3 million more people now in population. But get this, the Florida budget is half of New York's, half with more people. And moreover, (laughs) it just gets better Florida has no taxes, no income taxes. So if you live if you live in New York City, your federal uh no, your state and local tax is uh nearly 15%, Joe, if you live in the city. Yeah. If you live in Miami, you know what your income tax is? Zero. <laughs> Zero. Why do you think these hedge funds are all moving to Miami? <laughs> uh, I think you're familiar with a company called the Citadel, right? Yes, of course. Good for you. And where were they? I'm just they saying, it, it's yeah, right. They were in Chicago. Chicago. And then they went to Miami, exactly to yeah. your point. Tesla goes from Silicon Valley, California. To Texas. To Austin, Texas. Right. Exactly. What's the Atatella, income tax? Chicago. Zero oh, it's, in Texas. It's right, right. It's, it's, it's 0. 0.0, to quote Dean Wormer. So <laughs> yeah. that's why... Privately, I would love to see a a matchup between two governors in DeSantis and Newsom, Mm -hmm. because then the Newsom bumper sticker is I'll do to America what I did to California. And that's not going to resonate very well when they look at the homelessness, the tent cities, uh, obviously, the the big problem as far as the exodus of businesses and human capital out of that state or New York out of that state. Illinois is third, by the way, as far as that is concerned. So I've just filed a story on this, as a matter of fact, and this is backed up from, by everybody from the National Association of Realtors to the IRS to the census to U-Haul, who actually tracks this stuff. Illinois, New York, California, the top three states people are moving out of, the top three states they're moving into, Florida, Texas, South Carolina, Larry. Mm-hmm. So, so hang on. So Joe Concha, what what do you say to the Lindsey Graham uh, paradigm. So Lindsay comes out and endorses Trump. Lin- Lindsay says, uh, you can't have Trump policies without Trump. Oh. It's a very interesting thing. I mean, he said that, I don't know, it was last weekend or two, whenever Trump was down there a couple weekends ago. Now that's the counter. And, and he's come out and supported Trump. By the way, the governor uh, has supported Trump. Governor of South Carolina, I believe his name is McMaster. Um, yeah. You know, so Nikki Haley can run, but she doesn't have the support of her own state. That's going to be a gigantic problem for her. But going back to Lindsey, all right, you know, Lindsey Graham is Lindsey Graham. He's a wonderful guy. He's got a good sense of humor. He's off. He's a friend of mine for 25 years. Uh, he's a bit erratic, but sometimes he comes out with some very pithy things. You can't have Trump policies without Trump. Uh what Sarah uh, Sanders was saying the other night, brilliantly, brilliantly, is, um, yes, we can. Trump did all these things right, and she cited him and praised him. 
She bashed Biden, you know, for uh, being a, a, an untruth teller. How about that? I'll call it politely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then she said we need a new generation of Republican leaders, <laughs> which right, was very so- clever in a way, if you think about it. But that's the deal. Can you have Trump policies without Trump? I don't know the answer to that. Well, let's go back to Lindsey Graham. If we're going to take Lindsey Graham seriously for his words, he said in 2016 that there is no way that Donald Trump can win a general election. And when he loses, Mm. we all deserve it, is exactly what he said. At the beginning, at the very beginning. At the beginning, sure. And then obviously he saw his performance as president and said, "Okay, we can't have uh, Trump without Trump policies, right? Or we can't have uh, what exactly what what, uh, what what he said. So I respectfully disagree because, mm-hmm. again, I see the way Florida is run, and there's an awful lot of Trump policies down there that yes. is working, right? Yes. Very yes. pro-business, opened up very early, which, again, the president said that Florida stayed locked down too long. I, I read, went back and read the press accounts. DeSantis was on the first to reopen. So, I got yeah, it. Uh, we can have Trump policies without To without be Trump. continued. Joe Concha of The Hill and Fox News, and his book is Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible Presidency. Thank you, Joe. You're a prince. I appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to do some stock market work with David Bonson. I'm Kudlow. Hang around. we got much more cooking. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Let us reset. You can listen to us live streaming over the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. Real simple. And um, runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And let me just add, during the week... On uh, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, 4 to 5 p.m. If you can't make it at 4, just text message your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. It's not hard. Anyway, we're going to do some stock market work and other things. My dear friend, David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, author of There is No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And he's got a no-free-lunch video series, a six-part series in defense of free markets. Jerry, you got more – first of all, we got open field running. It's just you and me. No, None of my regulars want to work today. None. None of them. All right? The dignity of work. Maybe they're getting too many government benefits. Nobody wanted to work. It's just you and me. Um, thought you'd have a comment on that. Well, you know, I think some people do use their Saturdays for something different than you and I do, but that's that's all right. There's a a Bible verse about six days we shall work and do all our labors. So right, I'll stick to it. I always work six days. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Um, so, in defense of free markets, um, I didn't hear much of a defense of free markets from our president and the State of the Union. I did hear it from uh, Sarah Sanders. Jerry, but I didn't hear it from Biden. I mean, I've never heard a better example. I had Newt Gingrich on at the top of the show a couple hours ago. Um, This was big government socialism, more spending, more taxing, more regulating. Uh, He gave the oil industry 10 years to live. It's like dead man walking in his view. 
I mean, but but the interesting thing was I don't think the stock market had any particular reaction. I don't think they cared one whit about what he was saying. <laughs> what, what do you think? No, I mean, the stock market doesn't generally respond to political uh, events like that because it's not new news, okay? The fact that the Democratic Party has a message for working-class people that is not rooted in markets, that is not rooted in the dignity of work. Their message for blue-collar workers is not Jack Kemp's message. Mm-hmm. It's not about virtuous capitalism. It's essentially one of grievance, class struggle, class envy. It, it is more Marxian in terms of its philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a message that does say to blue-collar workers, we want better prosperity for you, we want better opportunity, but it's going to come from more incentives to work, keeping more of what you earn, a better energy policy, less regulation, more entrepreneurialism. See, th- th- that's where I just think this is the big need of the day. And frankly, Larry, sometimes people on the right are messing it up too. Let's talk to blue-collar, middle-class workers – and talk to them about the virtue of work, about dignity that mm-hmm. comes from open markets. Mm-hmm. He wants to go after Let's get those rich people. Let's tax them. I mean, you, let's go after the stock market. We got to tax uh, share buybacks as though that's a big. Let's go after corporations. We got to tax them. I have minimum tax. Let's, I like the rich people, Jerry, because the, the 2020 IRS numbers came out. And the top 1% is paying 42% of all the taxes. And the bottom 50%, Jerry, is, um, I mean, Jerry, David, is um, paying like 2.5%. And so Biden says that's unfair. The rich have to pay their fair share. What does fair share mean? I mean, it's just, it's a socialist concept. You, I, don't, I don't want them to have money. I want to redistribute all the money through a million government spending programs. I mean, I found that quite remarkable. Well, and that's the reason why, even if I were a a progressive, that I would be underwhelmed by the speech, because this is very tired rhetoric that they have to know is not going anywhere politically. And this is what I think is one of the great legacies of the work you all did out of the Reagan revolution, the supply side movement, the sort of, it wasn't merely the policy. It wasn't merely a couple great tax cut bills in 1982, 1986. The entire American ethos around taxes has been reprogrammed. Mm. And so a president can go give a speech like that, but it's fantasy Mm. because you cannot raise taxes on wage earners and, and and even good wage earners easily in this country. People understand it takes away quality of life for all income brackets. And and so, the, you, look, there's some rhetoric that can sound good, but the wealth tax isn't going anywhere. High taxes on investment isn't going anywhere. And and so, the, you know, the, the posturing and the speeches were really, I don't know, it was kind of old. And, and I think they need a better message if they're going to re-attract um, the blue-collar uh, middle-class workers that they've lost out of the Democratic Party. They've really become a party for coastal, progressive cultural liberal elites. David, have you interviewed in your podcast series uh, Kevin Hassett? I I have a couple of times, as a matter of fact. And yeah, Kevin's always a a treat to have on. He's a brilliant guy. So the thought I had here is here's Biden railing against corporations that don't pay their fair share, quote unquote. Um, 
it was Kevin Hassett, uh, more or less 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, who was writing when he was at the American Enterprise Institute, AI, that uh, if you raise taxes on corporations, the 70% of the higher burden is borne by middle-class workers. Now, that was laughed at for a while in the economics profession. It was like roughly the breakdown was 70% paid it, you know, fewer profits, lower wages, less employment. Um, And then the rest of it, David, was um, investors, shareholders, and consumers who would pay higher prices as a result of the higher taxes. But then over time, a bunch of very distinguished uh, economists began to look at that work and said, yeah, you know what? I don't know if the number is exactly 70 percent. It might be 50 percent. But yes, the burden would be paid by the blue collar worker or the middle, you know, the middle income worker and, and to some extent the lower middle income worker as well. And David, that that was the basis of the centerpiece of Trump's plan to cut corporate taxes. And if you look at the results, it was in fact the biggest beneficiaries, the ones who had the biggest increase in real wages, were in fact the um, middle class workers. It wasn't the upper end. The upper end benefited, but not as much as the middle or the lower middle. You know, and this is what Biden and the the socialists don't understand. And isn't that what we're seeing now? Like, won't it be incredibly ironic? I know a lot of people on the right want me to say we're about to go into the deepest recession ever. And all of this stuff that Biden's done is going to destroy the economy. And I still think a recession is a very likely scenario. But I will say this. If it doesn't happen it's going to be because of the Trump tax cut. Right, it's because, still there. Uh, because yeah, They're still there. Yes, and, yes, And, and, yes. and post-COVID, we're right now post-COVID, okay, we're sort of getting past the anomalies of what took place during COVID and then the, in the COVID recovery. And that, and those both of those eras were, were idiosyncratic. They're not normal. Now you get back to normal situation and you see wage growth in lower and middle-income brackets far outpacing higher wages and where there is unemployment, which there isn't much, but where there are layoffs, it's at the higher end of the spectrum. Mm. The Trump tax cuts of 2017 and 18 might save Biden's bacon in 2023. I think it's incredibly ironic. Yeah, it's still working. They're still there. They're still working. You're exactly right. And they, and they wanted to reverse all of them. They wanted to raise that rate, the top rate from 21 to 28 or more. And um, uh, yeah, actually, now, by the way, Larry, Larry, we, in fairness, they wanted it back to thirty-five. The well, only reason twenty, the only reason twenty-eight was in the bill is that they thought they could get Mansion to twenty-eight, but they wanted thirty-five. And actually, by the way, it was Kirsten Cinema who saved us from that. She was the she was a Mansion would have voted for twenty-eight. You're exactly right. The other thing, Jerry, is um, why am I calling you Jerry? It's the weirdest thing. The other thing, David, is that. Um, The depreciation bonus, the immediate expensing, which is really important, um, that's running down. Like this year, we get only 80 percent, not 100 percent. And then next year it goes to 60. 
Um, you know, that's a problem. And stuff like the R&D tax credit, which was 100%, um, you know, they took that out of the – I mean, there's about $125 billion worth of corporate taxes in that stupid inflation, so-called inflation reduction bill. Yeah, so the, the brilliance of what the, the corporate tax cut work that you all did was is it eliminated a lot of deductions and loopholes and, mm-hmm. and cutesy little things. But one of the credits it left in was R&D mm-hmm. and, and instant expensing. And, and to me, this is just black and white, back of napkin, kind of Steve Forbes-like tax planning, right? Just if you spend money, you, it's not, you don't have profits. And so... So if cash comes in, cash goes out, and what's left is what you're taxed on. And that doesn't seem very complicated. And and so the instant expensing of CapEx is a motivator for investment into factories, into inventory, into just productive economic activity. And if there's anything anyone can agree with, whether they're neo-Keynesian or supply side, it's that we need greater productivity and growth if we're going to kind of get through these times. And I don't understand for the life of me why that wouldn't be bipartisan to hold the bonus depreciation, to hold that instant expensing. There's not loopholes around it. We're talking about CapEx. It's a very straightforward tax deduction. Mm. It's because they want to tax rich people. They want to go after successful people. And nothing, no factoids, David, nothing will stand in the way of that. It's pure ideology. And it's a pity, too. I mean, everything he said was pro-inflation and anti-growth for over an hour, 70 minutes worth of garbage. Uh, but then we had Sarah uh, Sanders there to knock him down. Anyway, folks, no, we're talking. Sarah did a good job. Sarah did a good job. Fabulous. Just fabulous. We're talking to David Bonson. He's the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. Uh, and his book is There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. We're going to come back and actually talk about the stock market which actually is not doing too badly. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks, or we're going to talk stocks with David Bonson of the Bonson Group, and the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. So, David Bonson, I want to get your take on the stock market. It is interesting, you know, um, Ed Yardeni is uh, he said it on our show the other night, but he's been writing about this. Uh, you may be in a new bull market. He said, I think he's pinpointing about the middle of last October was the bottom. Uh, and year to date, right? The um, NASDAQ is up 12 percent. The S&P 500 is up six and a half percent. The Dow a little less. Um, what do you make of that? Are we in a new bull market? Well, we're not in a new bull market yet because, I mean, just descriptively, you, you have to kind of get back to where you were before. And, and so um, I've never believed a bull market starts at the bottom. I think a bull market starts when it's recovered what had been lost in a bear market. But we are in a period where there's a big question as to whether or not October 12th, 2022 mm. is going to prove to be to be that bottom or not. And if it does, it's going to go down a lot like the dot-com bear market where a bunch of overvalued tech got blown up, a bunch of crypto got blown up, a bunch of uh, COVID-era work-from-home type nonsense got blown up. But then the rest of the market, particularly energy and industrials and, and things like that, 
hung in there and did just fine. And I might add dividend stocks did just fine and value stocks did just fine. And so that's the question is, is the Fed going to break something or are they going to kind of get bailed out? And, And like I said before the break, the corporate tax cuts the, had left us with a pretty fertile economic environment. We don't have the growth we need. We don't have the productivity we need. We don't have the labor participation force we need. And the yield curve is screaming that all of us trying to get a little optimistic, both me and Ed Yardini, are wrong. But there's a lot of data points in Ed's favor, too. And, and it's very hard to imagine a recession at 3.4% unemployment. He says... Um... I'm just using him as our baseline. He's a very smart guy. He's also a very nice guy. Um, yes. He was saying there's no hard landing. There's no soft landing. There's no landing, <laughs> which I really like. There's no landing. Uh, and I like the rationale that you're using that the, the growth, the only growth component in the entire galaxy of Biden's big government socialist policies is the Trump tax cuts, which he has failed. He's nicked them. He's nicked them a little bit, but not yet fundamentally. And I find that, first of all, very ironic. But second of all, good. I mean, right? I mean, I don't want to see a deep recession. Uh, That's not going to help the country. It's not going to make us more powerful globally or beat China. So it's very ironic. It's the Trump, which... You, you know, Biden said it again at the State of the Union, uh, David. He said, right, I inherited uh, high inflation and a reeling economy. So the inflation rate was 1.4 percent and the economy in the first quarter of 2021 was six and a half percent, having grown it better than 20 percent in the second half of 2020. I mean, the guy's really a dummy, Biden. He just doesn't understand what's driving this. Well, I think that the reality is that nobody wants to talk about the longer term of what gets done out of these economic decisions. And so he can look at, oh, in this the year I came in, this and this was happening, and he, and he distorts that data too, as you point out. And then we can talk about what ends up happening here. But this is the thing that supply-siders care about and that those of us who are patriots care about. The next 10 years, are mm-hmm. we all going to be con- – are we going to be content? With one and a half percent real right. GDP growth, one percent right. real GDP growth, at some point, from all of these different uh, post-crisis, post-financial crisis presidencies and eras and policy regimes, is anyone interested in three, four percent real right. GDP growth? Right. That to me is where the opportunity must come if we are going to grow our way out of the debt, if we're to grow our way. Um, out of the debacle of, of stunted economic dyna- dynamic you know, opportunity, we're going to have to see that growth come back. And that's where Biden is, doesn't even pretend he has a plan, isn't even right. addressing in, uh, that subject. And that's, uh, you know, I, I have been saying this so much on the show, on the TV show. Uh, you know, we had three and a half percent growth for over 50 years after World War II. But in the last uh, several decades, it's dropped down to about one and a half. And the, C- the CBO, uh, whatever that's worth, is predicting another 10 years of one and a half percent growth. And if we get that, that'll be three decades. That is just that hurts us in so many ways, uh, you know, including things like budget spending and deficits and the big entitlement programs. So, I, you know, it's a, a very 
important theme. David, before we lose you, what, um, what's your advice on the stock market right now for our listeners? Well, I do think that people should be careful about getting rolled back in to uh, NASDAQ stocks or large cap growth stocks. They have had a nice little comeback here, but I mean, we're not even close to where they were. But these things didn't get cheap, Larry. They, they may have gotten cheaper than they were, but I wouldn't recommend jumping back into large cap growth at 25 or 30 times earnings. Mm. Um, and I would, and the S and P is still sitting close to 18 times earnings, and and that's not that's not counting on the possibility of profits dropping, mm. which you certainly would think they would if we have a recession. And so I think people need to be selective. You've had Nancy on with me before uh, uh, at Laffer's Group, and Nancy and I see a lot of this uh, the same way. Uh, we dividend stocks mm. value strong balance sheets, mm-hmm. companies growing, free cash flow. And I think that there's spots in the economy where people have good pricing power. I love what uh, energy stocks are doing. I love mm. the fact that they, uh, you know, are, are continuing to hold up, even oil in the 70s. All right. David Bonson, you're a prince. Thank you very, very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and come back with some money in politics. we got Steve Moore and Liz Peak. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics. We have Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist. We have Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity and WABC radio host. The name of the show is More Money. There we go. A promo. More Money. Now... Steve Moore, I'm going to go to you first because of your decades-long work on state and local government fiscal mm-hmm. economic issues, courtesy of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Yeah. I, I talked a lot about this last night on the show. We have two states in the union, New York State, Florida. Okay? So here's the deal. Florida has more people, three million more. Florida's annual state budget is one half the size of New York. One half the size. $115 billion versus two twenty-seven. right? More people, half the size budget. Now, if you live in New York City, all right, if you live in New York City, the combined state and local tax rate is 14.8%. 14.8. Doesn't even include federal. If you live in Miami, the combined state and local income tax rate is, wait for it, hold your breath, zero. <laughs> zero. 14 point. 
And wait a second. Florida has more people, half the budget, and no income tax. Their state GDP over the past five years increased by 17%, while New York State's increased by 8%. And, oh, by the way, Florida's unemployment rate is half in New York, 2.5 versus 4.3. Okay. I ask you, Steve Moore, what lessons do you learn from these factual data points? Well, this is one hell of a story, no question about it. And it is the story of what – it's the most important story of what's happening in, in America, the, the massive exodus out of blue states. And it's – by the way, it's not just New York. People uh, – California has lost 2 million net people in the last five or six years. California, I mean, how do you, how do you get people to leave one of the most beautiful places on the planet? Um, blue states are just hemorrhaging their greatest asset, which is their people. And then when the entrepreneurs leave, they take their businesses and jobs with them. I thought the most amazing statistic uh, of that report was that Florida spends half, yes, half per capita <laughs> on public services that New York does. And yet, in almost every regard, it would be one thing if New York had better services. They don't. Mm-hmm, <laughs> the schools right. are actually better in Florida than they are in New York. The the uh, you know the uh, the crime prevention is better in in Florida than it is in New York. The the fixing of roads it costs New York twice as much to fix a road as it does you know Florida. So you just go on and on down the line. The other thing I wanted to add is you know there's this big story that everybody's catching on to now because the census data is unequivocal that the stampede out of blue states to red states is accelerating. But I think it's even more that there's a nuance to this story. It's not just that people are leaving blue states. They are leaving blue cities. Mm. So Chicago, Mm -hmm. New York, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Detroit. uh, I could go on down the line. They're all leaving. People are leaving urban blue states that are so incredibly corrupt and poorly run. As you know, Larry, I'm from Chicago. I love Chicago. I practically grew up in Wrigley Field. It's been ruined. The state has been ruined by years and years of bad management and bad governance. And and you could say that about almost every blue city in America. Yeah, and these cities are run by these sort of Soviet-style city councils. Right? They're all all socialists. They're all socialists. We have it in New York. They're all socialists. It's yeah, like well, the old Soviet Union. Soviets. Mayor, These are Soviets. The mayor in, uh, in America is uh, Lightfoot in Chicago. Big election coming up in Chicago. Mm. You have a reformer who could really turn around Chicago, uh, and we'll see what happens there. But, you know, if the, if the people of Chicago are stupid enough to reelect Lightfoot, then they probably deserve the bad government they have. Now, Liz Peake, I'm going to generalize. I'm going to lift this up into a more general discussion. This New York, Florida story, Joe Biden's economic model is New York blue. That's what he's doing. Whereas, I don't know who it's going to be. I'll just say Republicans, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or Pompeo or Pence, whoever. But the Republican economic model is going to be Florida red. That's the way I see this. So this story about the complete failure of New York versus the complete success of Florida should be apocryphal. It should be a guideline, a roadmap to the 2024 election. 
and that Florida red and all those states like that will triumph over New York blue. Biden is New York. Republicans are Florida. What you think, Liz? Well, I think the discouraging thing is that this has become a fact-free universe, and you and I and Steve and the Wall Street Journal can lay out this incredibly incriminating evidence of the left-wing agenda, left-wing policies, show that it really harms Americans, that it does indeed have this uh, impact of shrinking the power, which is really what's happening for New York and California. When yep, they lose yep. seats in Congress, thank yep. the Lord, there is a sort of balancing mechanism here where they will have less clout in how the country is run. But we're not there yet. And I think what's really discouraging to me, and, and I kind of wake up, I woke up this morning discouraged about the state of our country because people are not listening. They're not looking at the very obvious evidence. Now, what would be really interesting, Larry, is to fast forward to the 2024 election, and some people think this might happen, and imagine for a moment that Gavin Newsom runs (laughs) against Ron DeSantis so that they run on their record and Mm -hmm. they will have to talk about their record. And then you say, well, then Americans really will have to come face to face with the real serious costs of being, you know, soft on crime, higher taxes, anti-business regulation, et cetera, except then I say, okay, really, but the media really won't talk about any of that. And it'll come down to, I don't know, Gavin Newsom's hairstyle or something. (laughs) I mean, you know, you get get discouraged on this. He has great hair. But, you know, I, I just, I find the state of our union just really troubling. Steve, basically, If you go back to last Tuesday night, Joe Biden in his State of the Union message, here's what I took away. I want to be more like New York. I want America to be more like New York. And I haven't even mentioned woke or school choice or all the racist and gender stuff, which Sarah Sanders just blasted him for it. Mm-hmm. Normal versus crazy, man. That's right. How good is that? All these Republicans should adopt that. Just yep. get up there, go normal versus yep. crazy. Point the finger at X, Y, Z at the debate and say you're crazy. <laughs> Just say it. Nobody yeah. believes this stuff can work. I mean, Joe Biden says we must be like New York. All right, yep. you can't get yep. you can't let them get away with that. Cannot see more endless peak. That's the the so, stakes <laughs> here are very. This is it. The it's apocryphal. High. I mean, Larry, when you have – look at the murder rate in the city of Chicago or in the city of Philadelphia. Look at the crime rate, the the shoplifting and stuff. All of this is hurting exactly the people that Democrats pretend to care about, right? The minority neighborhoods in these cities and states are getting massacred by what – you know, all these gangs that now have – really no accountability. There's no ability to lock up people who are offenders. Store owners are shutting down and leaving the state because their shops are pilfered day after day and there's nothing they can do about it. What corner of the progressive brain mm. thinks that's okay? I don't know, but it is a, it's just infuriating. I don't know. Steve Moore, save America. Vote Florida red. That's what you <laughs> yeah, have to I, do. I love, I love um, my dream matchup for 2024 would be Gavin Newsom versus Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. because 
Uh, it would really be, a, do you want blue state America or do you want red state America? It's I, I debate liberals all the time and, you know, all sorts of interesting debates. The one thing I've noticed over the last 10 or 15 years, the left has no response to. They, they don't have any response to if your model works so well, if you're building these uh, worker paradises, then why is everybody leaving? Mm. And, they, yeah. they, you know, they, this brings them to an abrupt halt. <clears throat> they have no response to that. Now, I want to respond to something Liz just said. You know, in Washington, D.C., I don't live in D.C., but I live in the metropolitan area. You may have followed the story, but the city council mm. voted over even the objections of the mayor to essentially decriminalize violent crime in the violent city. crime. It's unbelievable. It's, it's the most unbelievable thing. Yeah. And by the way, who are the victims of these crimes, Larry? It's the, it's minorities. It's it's the Hispanics and and blacks. So you have the situation now where this is another interesting demographic trend. Guess who is leaving? In fact, there was a story. Yeah. I think it was in the uh, Wall Street Journal. You know who is leaving the blue cities now? Black. Americans. Mm. It's the reverse migration mm. when the blacks, you know, black Americans in the 20th century, started the 20th century, moved from the southern states to cities like Chicago and Detroit. They're moving back south. It's an amazing thing. By well, the way, why why wouldn't they? Again, right. cr- their neighborhoods are attacked by this crime surge. And by the way, they don't get their kids educated. I mean, I do right. think That's education a is a huge issue for I Republicans agree. in 2024. I Americans agree. care about it. All people care about it because they want their kids to have an opportunity. Joe Biden talks about possibilities. Your kid does not have possibilities if they right. don't get educated. And right now right. we are failing minority kids in our in our well, big cities. Look at the contrast here, too. New York Blue uh, has some school choice, but the city council and the state yeah. legislature are against it because of yeah. the teachers union. There's yeah. some school choice, but, you know, Mike Bloomberg, but it's – Florida – is massively school choice. Yeah. It started with Jeb Bush, and DeSantis has um, extended that. So the education performance and opportunities here, too, in Florida Red, are substantially better. And I want to add another key point, Liz. You know, DeSantis has pretty decent hair. It's not <laughs> it bad. Does. It's not bad. It's not bad, all right? It's not like my hair. I mean, it's it's okay hair. (laughs) Not as good as Gavin Newsom. Not as good. Nobody's as good as Gavin Newsom. Now, Steve, more of the other point is... We call him Governor Hair Gel. All right, Governor Hair Gel. Steve, though, the other point here is um, uh, you got all these Republican governors essentially emulating the Florida red model. uh, Kim Reynolds, for example. Uh, Look, Sarah Sanders is going to do it. Um, Christy Noem out there. Uh, I love it that they're females, yeah, but they're Larry, terrific. Larry, but you've got not, Glenn not, Youngkin's been on the show, cutting yeah. taxes, uh, Arizona, Georgia, right? In other words, Florida Red is spreading like wildfire. And I think that's really encouraging. Like the most interesting part of governance today is what's going on in so many of these states, both the both the good and, as you guys were saying, the bad. Yeah. Look at the bad. These city councils are Soviets, they're not right. city. They're Soviets, for heaven's sakes. And they do crazy-ass things that become law and destroy the cities. It's unbelievable. Well, the city, yeah, the cities that the left used to love to point to, which were, quote, progressive successes, mm. were San Francisco, Portland, 
Seattle. Yes. Those cities have been completely destroyed yes. by the, you know, yes. by the Antifa riots, mm-hmm. by the poor education, by the high taxes. So for the first time in 30 years, people are leaving San Francisco. They're leaving Portland. They're leaving Seattle. Everything that the radical progressives touch, they destroy. It's, See, by the way, I am going uh, tomorrow. I mean, on Monday, I am flying to Charleston, West Virginia, to mm-hmm. meet with gov- the governor there, uh, Governor Judge. He wants to abolish the West Virginia state income tax. Yes, yes. So that's going to be amazing when people leave Illinois and New York for West Virginia. <laughs> and and that, by the way, West Virginia has been coming on as a good place. I know. As a suburb of New York. And by the way, Steve, tell him to run for the Senate. He'll whoop mansion. Yes, he you wants know? to. By the way, it's, this is another point. With Sarah Sanders, she gave, I think, the most blunt rebuttal I've yeah. ever heard. It was just yep. blunt. And the, and it's summarized by normal versus crazy. I couldn't agree more. And that there's a lesson for yep. all these Republicans who debate and give speeches, right? Don't screw around. Just go right towards it. That's yep. what Sarah did. I mean, and, that's and why it was so effective. I agree. I mean, we can all talk about the virtues of, you know, the minimum wage or, the you know, all this sort of in-the-weed stuff that most Americans couldn't care less about. What what they're fed up with, Larry, I do believe, is the crazy. Mm. They're, they're tired of having their schools turned upside down mm-hmm. because one girl thinks she's a boy or the boy thinks she's a girl, and everyone gets in a big uproar about it. AOC the other day was ranting about how terrible it was to be investigating FBI censorship and, and Twitter censorship because they could be doing so much else. Okay, Guess what? The whole country feels that way about all this gender and race stuff that we're we're sunk into it. We're mired into mm-hmm. all this. Uh, it's crazy. It is. It's it is totally crazy. crazy. And most people think so. And they should just do what Sarah did and come out and say it. Yep, I could. We're agree all more. thinking it. Just come out and say it. Because there's I like agree. only a minuscule part of the population that buys into this crap. Yep. And she's yep. basically said that. They're yelling me. I got to take a break. Uh, <laughs> Florida red versus New York blue. Joe Biden versus DeSantis or whoever it's going to be. Anyway, Liz Peek is here and Steve Moore is here. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. We're here with Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And he is the host of the WABC radio show, More Money, which follows on most of these same stations. Liz Peake, I'm reading your, I think this is your latest, Friday, February 10th on the Hill. Everything Biden said, this is a good point. Everything Biden said, all his goofy, crazy policies uh, from the State of the Union would raise the inflation rate. You are correct. Everything he said. I mean, here he is bragging on him. He brought it down three percentage points. He lied about Trump. But everything he said would raise inflation. Well, we've been down this road before, right? What 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 is he talking about? Number one, he hasn't. Uh, backed away at all from increasing spending. I mean, whether it's the student loan forgiveness program that he still wants to do, a whole host of other programs that he seems very keen to enact, he wants to continue to increase spending. So we know the good news is I think all Americans know that it is the uh, overreaching Democrat 
budget and spending in 2021 that led to where we are now, that led to 40-year-old high inflation. So that's number one. Number two, buy American. It sounds great. Uh, but what are we really talking about? When, when a great amount of our construction materials that are needed in infrastructure projects of the kind that Biden wants to fund come from overseas and do so because, guess what, they're cheaper. So basically all that is going to raise prices and costs. And by the way, it's also infuriating our allies in Europe, and they are beginning to implement similar protective measures, which will inc- increase our costs of imports even more. Uh, and of course, his ongoing pro-union position, which he doubled down on again in the State of the Union speech, all of that raises costs. It all raises inflation. And you know that that nobody calls him out on this stuff. Oh, and I do. Sorry, I didn't even mention energy, mm. which of course he cannot let go of this. Uh, renewables dream of his that we're going to really, he talked about utility bills coming down. It's completely not true. It's a fiction. All that we're going to see from utility bills is a steady increase as utilities have to struggle to supplant cheap coal and natural gas with much more expensive uh, solar and wind. I mean, all of this is so wrong-headed, Larry. It just makes you want to shout. But, you know, it's not going to help. Ten years, Liz. He gave oil 10 years to live. Oh, I, I know. I mean, honestly, oil and gas so is walking. Dumb. Oil and gas and fossils, dead men walking. Yeah. That's what they are. 10 yeah. years. So what a shock that people don't invest in an industry. The, the big majors won't go out but, and sink their money into a project, which oftentimes will take 10 or 15 years to come to fruition. But like Steve, a big offshore find. I mean, how stupid can that be? Steve Moore, uh, Republican House will stop everything, right? All of it. Steve Moore, you there? I have to say, Larry, I'm quite impressed with you know the the, the what what uh, Kevin McCarthy has been saying about yeah. you know being this, this normal versus crazy, right? And yes. you know I love yes. what uh, what uh, Smith is doing with new, the New Ways and Means Committee. One just thing that I would add to what Liz was talking about: surely he can find something, something in the budget we can we can cut. I mean, my God, no, six and a half no, you can't. Budget. It's all what essential. Every yeah, nickel is essential. And, and I want Republicans, by the way, Larry, to really press this old Reagan line of waste, fraud, yeah. and abuse. And yeah. when it, it's probably 10 times higher yeah. when you have $400 billion stolen from the PPP program, $80 billion yeah. stolen from the unemployment insurance program, $50 billion stolen from food stamp program, and nobody in Washington does anything about it. You know, uh, Biden never even mentioned the debt ceiling negotiations. He's too busy uh, going on about Medicare and Social Security, which is the stupidest discussion I've ever seen. Oh, Larry, and he's really doubled down on that. I don't know if you've been watching some of the clips of him out on the campaign trail, but it's it's really nasty and it's almost kind of personal. Uh, And and by the way, Senator Scott obviously raised uh, gave Biden a lot of ammo here, even though Biden is totally dishonest in his approach to or in his interpretation of what Scott's talking about. But the truth is, we should have a sunset. And Uh, in fact, Biden was in favor of that back in the 90s. You know, all these bills. I, I remember writing once and I can't remember exactly the numbers, but they're like 17 federal job training uh, programs right. because no one ever wants to shut anything down. You don't make headlines or score votes I'm by gonna, shutting things down. I'm going to promo Steve Moore's show again. <laughs> all right. It's called More Money. 
Thank you, Steve Moore. And uh, thank you, Liz Peak. You're both fabulous. I'm Cudlow, folks. We will see you soon. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 